0: Our speaker tonight, Susan Orlean, has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1992, but she also possesses some serious Boston creds, having been a former writer for the lost and lamented Boston Phoenix and the Boston Globe back before the Red Sox reversed the curse. She's the author of seven books, including Rin Tin Tin, Saturday Night, in The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Academy Award-winning film adaptation. Tonight, Susan will speak to us about her newest book entitled The Library Book. The New York Times described it as lovely, the Washington Post called it a constant pleasure to read, and the Boston Globe, her former employer, declared it a love letter to librarians. It tells the story of a mysterious fire that consumed hundreds of thousands of books at the Los Angeles Public Library in 1986, but uses this disaster to explore the larger, crucial role that libraries play as a vital part of our culture. Please join me in welcoming Susan Orlean to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: so much that's about the nicest homecoming that I've ever received and I have to tell you before I begin this is shocking but this is the first time I've been in this building and I know it's shocking Um, and I'm not gonna leave Um, I am so honored to be here. Absolutely thrilling to me and especially meaningful having had a very important part of my professional life unfold here. Um, And I have a few colleagues of mine from that era who are here and uh, we were reminiscing briefly about it. It was a really important time of my life and uh, really meaningful one that I still think about. So being here, also my son was born here, I forgot. I've had a lot of important events here. (laughs) Not here, I mean. um, (laughs) I wanna talk to you about how and why I wrote this book Um, and to begin with, I wanna read a little I'm going to read a few small, uh, short sections from the book and talk to you a little bit about its genesis and what it meant to me to do this particular book. And this is from the beginning. I grew up in libraries, or at least it feels that way. I was raised in the suburbs of Cleveland, just a few blocks from the brick-faced Bertram Woods branch of the Shaker Heights Public Library System. Throughout my childhood, starting when I was very young, I went there several times a week with my mother. On those visits, my mother and I walked in together, but as soon as we passed through the door, we split up and each headed to our favorite section. The library might have been the first place I was ever given autonomy. Even when I was maybe four or five years old, I was allowed to head off on my own. Then after a while, my mother and I reunited at the checkout counter with our finds. Together we waited as the librarian at the counter pulled out the date card and stamped it with the checkout machine. That giant fist thumping the card with a loud chunk chunk printing a crooked due date underneath a score of previous crooked due dates that belonged to other people, other times. Our visits to the library were never long enough for me. The place was so bountiful. I loved wandering around the bookshelves, scanning the spines until something happened to catch my eye. Those visits were dreamy, frictionless interludes that promised I would leave richer than I arrived. It wasn't like going to a store with my mom, which guaranteed a tug of war between what I wanted and what my mother was willing to buy me. In the library, I could have anything I wanted. After we checked out, I loved being in the car and having all the books we'd gotten stacked on my lap, pressing me under their solid warm weight, their Mylar covers sticking a bit to my thighs. It was such a thrill leaving a place with things you hadn't paid for. Such a thrill anticipating the new books we would read. On the ride home, my mom and I talked about the order in which we were going to read our books and how long until they had to be returned, a solemn conversation in which we decided how to pace ourselves through this charmed, evanescent period of grace until the books were due. We both thought all of the librarians at the Bertram Woods Branch Library were beautiful. For a few minutes, we would discuss their beauty My mother then always mentioned that if she could have chosen any profession at all, she would have chosen to be a librarian. And the car would grow silent for a moment as we both considered what an amazing thing that would have been. When I was older, I usually walked to the library myself, lugging back as many books as I could carry. Occasionally, I did go with my mother, and the trip would be as enchanted as it was when I was small. Even when I was in my last year of high school and could drive myself to the library, my mother and I still went together now and then, and the trip unfolded exactly as it did when I was a child, with all the same beats and pauses and comments and reveries, the same perfect pensive rhythm we followed so many times before. When I miss my mother these days, now that she is gone, I like to picture us in the car together, going for one more magnificent trip to Bertram Woods. So how did I come to write this book? Well, I have to say, at certain points during the six years that I was working on it, I wondered that very thing. (laughs) But this came about in an interesting way, a little differently from, from the other books I've written. It was sort of a gradual accretion of curiosity rather than one bolt out of the blue. What had happened was some years ago, I was in a library one day doing ordinary library stuff and I looked around and had a moment of just thinking, I, w- I wonder how libraries work. And I, I have a sort of propensity for that kind of curiosity, which is, to look at something very familiar and realize that I actually had no idea how it functioned. And I thought to myself, boy, I, I really would love to know what the life, the day-to-day life of a library is, is like. That someone should write a book about that. Not me, but someone should do that. And I filed it away. In my rather overstuffed filing cabinet of ideas. A few years later, my husband and my son and I moved to Los Angeles. And my son was very little, he was in first grade. And early on, I think it was a week into the school year, he got an assignment. And the assignment was for him to interview someone who worked for the city. And I took his measure. I thought, first grade, little boy. I said, how about if you interview a garbage man? And he took my measure and said, how about if I interview a librarian? <laughs> I think it's a fact that he'll remind me of for the rest of his life. I, I quickly pivoted and thought, I am such an amazing parent. I mean, look at this kid. <laughs> So we we were so new to to the city that we didn't even know where the nearest library was. I mean, LA was brand new for us. We looked it up, and I packed my son into the car, and we headed toward the the library. As we were going, I thought, "Oh, this is just about the same distance as Bertram Woods was from my house when I was growing up." Just was in the back of my head. And I don't know what it was about that trip, but when we walked into the library, there was something about the feel of that branch library, the smell of it, the sound of it, that felt utterly familiar. It felt exactly like those trips that I had taken with my mom in a way that was so profound. I felt like I was being shot backwards in time to that exact moment of traveling with my mother. And it, it struck me so powerfully that I thought, why Why are libraries so evocative? I went to lots of places with my mother and I don't walk into grocery stores and go, oh my God, this is just like going to the grocery store with my mom. I It was a particular experience that was uniquely powerful and profound. And I thought, I wonder what it is about libraries. Someone should write a book about that. And again, filed it away in my head, just as an idle thought. So around that same time, I was asked by the Library Foundation if I would give a little talk at one of their fundraisers. And as a thank you, the head of the foundation, a man named Ken Brecker, said um, offered as a thank you to give me a tour of the downtown library. And I was very excited because I didn't know LA had a downtown. <laughs> And we made our plans um, and a few weeks later, I went to meet him and I was completely struck by the library. I don't know if any of you have been to the Central Library in LA, but for those of you who haven't, it doesn't look like the New York Public Library or the Boston Public Library or the typical big city library. It looks like someone had a book about Art Deco and a book about Egypt under his pillow and he fell asleep. And <laughs> in the morning, designed this building. It's a, a sort of fantasia that's a little Art Deco, a little Moroccan, a little God knows what. And it, it absolutely delighted me. As we were walking through the library, Everything that Ken was telling me about the history of the place and the patrons and the former head librarians and the architect who designed it, everything was just bubbling. It felt to me like the whole place was just chattering with stories. And I thought, God, someone should really write a a book about libraries but what would, what would be the narrative? And I was just very excited because I love the place. We wandered into the fiction section and Ken just pulled a book off the shelf and took a, a deep whiff off the book. And I stood there a little awkwardly and thought, am I supposed to take a another book now and smell it? Or uh, what, what do I do? And I kind of smiled and he said, you can still smell the smoke in some of them. And I said, did they used to let people smoke in the library? And he said, no, no smoke from the fire. I said, what fire? And he said, the big fire, the fire in 1986 that closed the library for seven years. And I thought, boy, someone should really write a book about this. I I was absolutely galvanized. I I was puzzled too, because I learned very quickly that it was the largest library fire in American history. It occurred in 1986. It burned for seven and a half hours. The temperature rose over 2,000 degrees. And some of the firefighters told me that the flame went from red to orange to blue to being perfectly clear. They could actually see through the fire, which terrified them. burned so fiercely that firefighters couldn't stay in the building for more than 10 minutes at a time. They had to rotate out. They were running through their oxygen that normally lasts an hour in 10 minutes because they were breathing so heavily. There was a point when there was a real question about whether they would ever put the fire out. And if any of you have been in the stacks here you'll appreciate the fact that this fire was in the stacks. So it was really like burning in a chimney. It was seven stories full of flammable material. When the fire was finally put out and an assessment was made, 400,000 books were destroyed. 700,000 were damaged. I was, for one thing, curious to understand why I had never heard about this fire. I was living in New York in 1986, so it didn't happen around the corner from me. But this was an epic fire, something that I was sure the New York Times would have covered. So after my tour of the library, I... I came home and looked up the New York Times from that day in April of 1986, because I thought what was going on that would've pushed this news out of, out of my view? <clears throat> well, the newspaper of that day had a banner headline, something to the effect of Soviets deny meltdown at Chernobyl nuclear plant. So I knew right away why I hadn't heard about this. And it, it, it. the other thing that I found fascinating was my reaction, which is nobody, a fire is horrible, and nobody wants to hear about a fire. And nobody delights in a fire. But the idea of a library burning was so disturbing, so horrible, in a way that fit this other curiosity I had, which is why are libraries so meaningful to us? Why do they evoke so much emotion? So I wanna read a tiny bit about the fire before I move on. At first, the smoke in the fiction stacks was as pale as onion skin. Then it deepened to dove gray. Then it turned black. It wound around fiction A through L, curling in lazy ringlets. It gathered into soft puffs that bobbed and banked against the shelves like bumper cars. Suddenly, sharp fingers of flame shot through the smoke and jabbed upward. More flames erupted. The heat built. The temperature reached 451 degrees, and the books began smoldering. Their covers burst like popcorn. Pages flared and blackened and then sprang away from their bindings, a ream of sooty scraps soaring on the updraft. The fire flashed through fiction, consuming as it traveled. It reached for the cookbooks, the cookbooks roasted. The fire scrambled to the sixth tier and then to the seventh. Every book in its path bloomed with flame." So out of the books that were destroyed, I mean, it's almost, it would almost take me too long to to list all of it for you, but whole sections of the library were gone. All of the fiction, A through L, all of the science, 90,000 books about computers, all of the theater, all American and British plays, five and a half million American patent listings, and this was the only complete patent collection west of the Mississippi at that time. Um, The entire collection of Jane's annuals for aircraft dating back several decades, 9,000 business books, 6,000 magazines, 18,000 social science books, a first edition of Fannie Farmer's Boston Cooking School cookbook, from 1896, 12,000 other cookbooks, including six books of popcorn recipes. (laughs) So it it was a devastating fire, and it was determined fairly quickly, or a decision was made fairly quickly that it was arson. The definition being that it was lit by an open flame in a human hand. So this was fascinating to me. What happened? Why would someone burn a library? Now, in a way, that's a rhetorical question because we've been burning libraries for as long as we've been building libraries. And the number of books lost over the course of history is practically unimaginable, particularly in World War II, which was the single most destructive event to books in the history of mankind. There were millions and millions and millions of books burned. Some were collateral damage when cities were bombed, but many were sought out and burned. And this brought me back again to the question, why would you seek out a library and burn it? There's no strategic value when you're waging war in burning a library. But it was done repeatedly. The Nazis had a specific unit called the Brenn Commandos, and they were simply charged with finding libraries and burning them down. The reason is that it's horrifying to people. It's a way of saying to people, you and your memories and your culture will be lost to the world's memory. They'll be gone. So it's a psychological blow. Actually, George Orwell at one point said that burning books was, in his opinion, the characteristic behavior of the Nazis because it was an attempt to not only warn people of the fact that there was no safety anywhere because people think of libraries as so safe, but as a a warning that the world would never remember them and they would be wiped from the face of the earth. Where does our emotional connection come in? Well, I was seeking this through the entire time I was working on the book. And I came across an expression that's used in Senegal that finally brought it all together to me. And the expression is, when someone dies, rather than saying that they've died, you say his or her library has burned. And to me, that captured everything. That made me realize what is the resonance between us and our books and our libraries. Each individual has in his or her mind, in a sense, a personal library. It's volume after volume of knowledge, of information, of vignettes, of fantasies, of dreams, of memories of every experience in their life and their aspirations, every person they've ever known, filed away almost like little books in our minds. (laughs) <laughs> "Libraries do that same thing for an entire culture. There are our memories. They hold in them all of our dreams and our fantasies and our knowledge, everything we've learned, everything we're trying to figure out. So the connection is deep and in a way, we're interwoven with the experience of a library. It's as if they are a communal brain that represents what we each have inside of us. This became more vividly clear to me when I was working on the book. When I first decided I was going to be that person who was gonna write this book, I, I told my mom and like all good mothers, she took credit for it immediately (laughs) and said, you know, I think I'm the one who first introduced you to libraries and had you fall in love with libraries. And I said, you know, you're right, you did. And she was very excited that I was writing a book about libraries. About a few months into the process of working on the book, she was diagnosed with dementia And over the next stretch of time, I realized that I was watching her library burn, that she was losing those volumes of memory, of knowledge, information, all of the things that made her who she was. And that's when that expression really made me understand how deeply we are aligned with libraries and why we care about them so much. One of the things that I loved doing when I was working on the book was learning the history of the LA Library. I think all libraries probably have a lot of unusual people who have, um, no offense to anybody here, but um, they attract eccentric people and I would say uh, Los Angeles perhaps has an oversupply of (laughs) eccentric people who have run the library. My favorite, um, someone who I ended up writing a lot about and who I could have written a whole book about, was a man named Charles Lummis who ran the library for five years at the turn of the century. And he was not a trained librarian, but he was a writer, a journalist, passionate book lover. He was so passionate that one of the things he did was it it really bothered him when people read books that he thought were stupid. (laughs) He had two choices, or at least he believed he had two choices. One was to remove those books from the collection, which he didn't feel was appropriate, And the other, and maybe this wouldn't have been everybody's decision, but he had a cattle brand made with a skull and crossbones, and he branded the books that he thought were particularly stupid and included a slip of paper. Um, He wanted it to say, this is the worst possible book on this subject, and he was persuaded to sort of tone it down a little, and instead it said, there are far better books on the subject, such as, and then he had the librarians fill in. He, he was an incredible figure whose entire life was fascinating. Um, he began his stay in Los Angeles in an exceptional way. He had been a newspaper man in Cincinnati and was hired by the LA Times, which was a new newspaper in 1900. And he accepted the job and packed up his belongings and then walked to Los Angeles. Um, So he was a very interesting figure to say the least. And it really, I felt like I was going into this marvelous, somewhat unexplored history when I wanted to just trace the story of the library and really how it got from its inception to 1986 when it was burned. Now, just to go back a little bit, I failed to tell you that the library was closed for seven years after the fire. It was a really devastating fire. 700,000 damaged books had to be immediately removed from the building. And many of them were smoke-damaged, but many of those 700,000 were wet from the hose, you know, the water that was used to put the fire out. So if books get wet, you either have to dry them immediately, or within 48 hours they'll mold, in which case they're hopeless. They can't be restored. The only thing you can do to buy yourself some time is to freeze them while you're waiting to figure out what you're gonna do with them. So within a day, 700,000 wet books were removed from the library. And then someone said, does anybody have a really big freezer um, (laughs) so we can freeze these books? And they ended up in the frozen food warehouses all around the city. Um, and they stayed there for six years when they were finally, and actually, you know, some of them smell like smoke and I assume some of them smell like, you know, shrimp. Um, (laughs) but when they were finally removed and an attempt was made to dry them out, it was the largest single book restoration project ever undertaken. The good news is, um, using extraordinary amounts of high-tech science, they were actually able to save a great number of those books. So if you go to the library now, you'll you'll be handling some of the books that made it through the fire, which is pretty amazing to me. As I was working on the book um, and the way I write is I do all of my research before I begin writing. And I was researching for uh, close to three years when I thought, all right, I think I'm ready to write. One day I was telling one of the rare book librarians very proudly that she wouldn't be seeing me around as much anymore because I was just going to be at home now writing the book. And I said, I'm done. I've done all my research. I know everything there is to know. And she looked at me for a minute, and then she said, you know, I think there are some boxes. And I said, ah. And she said, wait a minute. Hang on a minute. I thought to myself, I could run. (laughs) Just no one will know. I'll just get out of here. And I the reporter in me made me stay. After a few minutes, she came out, and she was just beaming from ear to ear. What I didn't notice is there was a clerk behind her sort of dragging this cart, and she said to me, I was right, there are 68 boxes of material way back in the rare book, and I I just stood there and said, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, so happy. And actually, <laughs> it was amazing material. It was material, much of which had been collected by librarians o- from the very beginning of the library's history. Odds and ends. Uh, Charles Lummis's annual reports, which were are worth reading because they're so insane. And <laughs> endless amounts of detail and and sort of flotsam and jetsam of the life of the library. So it was really wonderful. It set me back a few years, I have to say. But um, one of the things that was in there, and I just want to read a little bit f- um, from this because I loved it. The great thing about writing a book about libraries is that librarians are, are very organized and they keep lists of things. And one of the things I came across, which I adored and could easily have published just in and of itself, was a logbook from something called the Southern California Answering Network. And that was essentially the human Google. It was um, the bank of librarians who answered phone calls all day long. And L.A. had, and I'm sure Boston had a similar system back when that's how you got information. LA's was particularly busy. because They would get very, very busy in starting at about four in the afternoon. Someone finally figured out that when the libraries on the East Coast closed, people would all start calling the LA Library (laughs) with their questions, so they were very busy. But I loved the questions, and this log was just like candy for me to read. So I I wanna read a little bit from it for you. This is from the 1960s. Um, These were calls that were coming in to the Southern California Answering Network. Patron call, wanted to know how to say the necktie is in the bathtub in Swedish. (laughs) He was writing a script. Patron call asking for a book on liver disorders for her husband who is a heavy drinker. (laughs) Patron wants to know origin of the expression bear coughed at the North Pole, unable to provide answer. (laughs) Patron call asking whether it is necessary to rise if national anthem is played on radio or television. (laughs) Explain that one need only do what is natural and unforced. For instance, one does not rise while bathing, eating, or playing cards. (laughs) Patron is a writer in Hebrew, wanted to create a pun between the word for Zion and the word for penis. (laughs) We couldn't find a term for penis, but the word copulate is mitzion, which helped her make a pun with Zion. Patron, inquiring whether Perry Mason's secretary, Della Street, is named after a street and or whether there is a real street named Della Street. <laughs> and finally, and this is a sort of tender one, patron asked for help writing inscription for father's tombstone. So you can get whatever you need at the library. Um, This book was an incredible challenge because it was really many books at once. It was the story of the fire and the investigation which um, pursued a young man named Harry Peake, a wannabe actor who um, became a suspect because he told lots of people that he had started the fire. Um, He was a a guy who had big dreams and had an unfortunate tendency to tell stories. So the question became a matter of whether this was one of his stories or whether he had actually started the fire. And the legal story itself was fascinating. It was also the story of the history of the library, which was just populated by... People like Charles Lummis, these wonderful figures. It was like a pageant of interesting people. And it was such a pleasure to dig into that history. It was also the first idea I ever had about this book, which was I attempted to capture the day-to-day life in the library. And I spent time in every department, including all the back office stuff that goes on at the library. And it it was completely fascinating. And it was also an exploration of this persistent question I had, why do libraries mean so much to us? What is it that makes their connection something that feels extraordinary? It feels different from the way we relate to almost anywhere else and our connection to books is so deep. Um, at one point in the course of doing the book, I realized I, I was writing about this terrible fire and I had never seen a book burn. I can't even throw a book out, even if I hate it. Um, I, even if I didn't buy it and someone gave it to me and it's falling apart, I, I have an inability to, to do harm to a book And I found that in itself absolutely fascinating. Why is it so disturbing? And in order to really understand that emotion, I decided to burn a book and see if I could do it. I mean, it was was hard to do. Um, And I had gotten to a point where I had decided I wasn't gonna do it, partly because I simply couldn't figure out what book I could bring myself to burn. And it was a long process. First I thought, I'll burn a book I hate. And then I thought, ugh, that's so wrong. I can't do that. So I thought, well, I'll burn a book I like. And then I thought, well, I can't, I'm not gonna burn a book I like. So I thought, well, I'll burn one of my books. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna burn one of my books. And I finally had decided that I wasn't gonna do it, that it was just too uncomfortable. And isn't that interesting when we know that books can be replaced, most books, the books I was looking at burning were, could all be replaced in a moment. And yet it's almost impossible to do, or I'd like to say it's impossible to do unless you're writing a book about libraries. And I had given up and thought I'm not gonna do this. And I told my husband, I've just decided, I I can't. I can't figure out what book I can bring myself to burn. And one day he came home, and he looked very pleased with himself, and he handed me a copy of Fahrenheit 451. (laughs) And and the rest is history. Um, I I wanna save time for questions, so I'm just gonna read one last section from the book. and I, I often feel that I, I don't do justice to my own book because it's, it's really like a library of stories that are all drawn together with this singular theme of, of what libraries mean. I went to the library late one day, just before closing time, when the light outside was already dusky and the place was sleepy and slow. The library is so big that when the crowds thin out, it can feel very private, almost like a secret place, and the space is so enveloping that you have no sense of the world outside. I went down to the history department, and then I roamed from department to department, just strolling through, and crossed the beautiful rotunda, a gorgeous surprise every time I entered it, and then went up the wide lap of the back staircase. The silence was more soothing than solemn. A library is a good place to soften solitude, a place where you feel part of a conversation that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, even when you're all alone. The library is a whispering post. You don't need to take a book off a shelf to know there is a voice inside waiting to speak to you, and behind that was someone who truly believed that if he or she spoke, someone would listen. It was that affirmation that always thrilled me. Even the oddest, most particular book was written with that kind of courage, the writer's belief that someone would find his or her book important to read. I was struck by how precious and foolish and brave that belief is and how necessary and how full of hope it is to collect these books and preserve them. It declares that all these stories matter, And so does every effort to create something that connects us to one another and to our past and to what is still to come. I realized that this entire time I had been convincing myself that my hope to tell a long-lasting story, to be alive somehow as long as someone would read my books, was what drove me on, story after story. It was my lifeline, my passion, my way to understand who I was. I thought about my mother who died when I was halfway done with this book. And I knew how pleased she would have been to see me in the library. And I was able to use that thought to transport myself for a split second to a time when I was young and she was in the moment, alert and tender, with years ahead of her. And she was beaming at me as I toddled to the checkout counter with an armload of books. I knew that if we had come here together, to this enchanted place with all the stories in the world for us to have, she would have reminded me just about now that if she could have chosen any profession in the world, she would have been a librarian. I looked around the room at the few people scattered here and there. Some were leaning into books, and a few were just resting, having a private moment in a public place, and I felt buoyed by being here. This is why I wanted to write this book, to tell about a place I love that doesn't belong to me but feels like it is mine, and how that feels marvelous and exceptional. All the things that are wrong in the world seem conquered by a library's simple, unspoken promise. Here I am, please tell me your story. Here is my story, please listen. Thank you.